So Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 39. Last time Jesus told the multitudes, uh, you remember to beware the scribes and the Pharisees and how they, you know, they, what they taught was okay, but how they lived, that was another thing. Don't copy that. Um, at the end of that message last time, there was a verse where Jesus was contrasting, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees, they thought what was considered greatness were things like big phylacteries on their heads and long tassels on their robes. And they thought the outward show of religion is what was important. You know, insides doesn't really matter. It's just what's going on on the outside. And they were fakers. They were hypocrites, Jesus called them. And then so Jesus, at the end of the last message, said, rather than you know, quantify greatness or qualify greatness as that brand of religion, what you ought to do is be a servant, right? And you can see that in verse 12 or verse 11 and 12. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant and whoever exalts himself will be humbled and who humbles himself, he who humbles himself will be exalted. So rather than be like the scribes and the Pharisees, you, God's people, be servants, serve one another. That's what greatness is in the kingdom. Now, the rest of this chapter, Jesus continues to kind of dish it out to the scribes and Pharisees. He denounces them completely. We're days away from the cross. He's done arguing back and forth with them. And now essentially what he's going to do is he's just going to pronounce judgment on them, right? And it's not because Jesus is mad at them. It's just because he's declaring that their behavior it's already settled in heaven that this behavior is judged. This is wrong. And he's going to pronounce that over them as Jesus denounces the Pharisees. So the text divides easily into two pieces here. You'll see them on the screen. Number one, verses 13 through 36. It's a large chunk. Uh, it says Jesus pronounces eight woes. And so woes are, you know, like I say, pronouncing judgment, just saying, you know, woe to you, this is judged behavior. So that's number one. Number two, verses 37 through 39, Jesus laments over Jerusalem. So you can see it's kind of off balance. One's like a huge chunk and the other one's just a, so when we're going through that first piece and you're like, wow, how's he going to get all this in? Well, the second part of it's pretty short. So Jesus fully denounces the religious leaders. The primary reason that he does so is because of their hypocrisy. And hypocrisy, the Greek word hypocrites, it just means an actor. Somebody that acts like something on the outside when they know full well that that's not what they are on the inside, right? Now, I want to make note real quick. A hypocrite is not somebody that holds to a standard of truth but can't live up to it. See, that's not a hypocrite, right? Parents, if you're telling your kids to do something and they look at you and say, but when you were younger, you did the same thing. You're a hypocrite. No, 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 no. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm holding to a standard of truth, which is God's truth. Even though I can't live up to it, I'm still, I still know it's true, right? That doesn't make you a hypocrite, right? What makes a person a hypocrite is when they are something inside and they act like something different on the outside purposefully. Like they, they know that there's a disconnect between their inner life and their outer life. And that describes the Pharisees. Greed, corruption, power hungry, uh, you know, things like that going on inside, but on the outside, pretending like they're very religious, right? So... Jesus denounces them for, for their hypocrisy primarily. Now look at verse 13. He goes on. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering 
to go in. Now that's the first woe that Jesus pronounces out of the eight. Before we go on, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to us. Lord, may this passage today um, cause us to scan ourselves. May we learn from you today. May we hear from you. May we be encouraged. And we do ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. He says, but woe to you, verse 13. It's judgment. He's not fed up. He's not mad. He's just pronouncing judgment upon the type of behavior they're involved in. He says, for you, in verse 13, you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. So what he's saying is, because of your false teaching, because of this legalistic Christianity that they've, or this legalistic Judaism that they were teaching, um, teaching that the way to enter to heaven was by keeping tedious amounts of rules and, and religion, by that false teaching, they kept themselves from going into heaven, right? And, and another way they keep themselves from going into heaven is they, you know, biggest thing that they did wrong was they rejected Jesus. Like you're not going to heaven if you reject Jesus. And so Jesus is saying to them, woe to you because you're not going in, but you're also through your witness, through your influence on others, you're keeping other people from going to heaven. Now, it's a pretty bum deal if you don't go to heaven. But that's on you. But if you, because of either your witness or your teaching, keep other people from going to heaven, that's a big deal. Jesus says if you cause somebody to stumble that's coming to follow him, he says it's better off if you've got a millstone tied around your neck and you're thrown into the bottom of the sea than it is that you would cause somebody following him to stumble, right? And so that's the first one. Now, second woe, verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Jesus standing in the temple in front of this whole multitude of people, but he's looking at these Pharisees, these scribes, and he's denouncing them, and he's saying, uh, woe to you because you devour widows' houses. Now, they had a process or a, uh, what is it? can't think of the word. A practice. Sorry. Got a lot of words in my head. Um, They had this practice of manipulating widows out of their property, getting widows to sign their houses over to the church, right? Now, there are cults that do this similar thing today. There's a similar practice going around, and and prosperity uh, preachers have no problem doing this too. In fact, I had a grandma that sent her ring, you know, to a prosperity preacher. Like he's he told her, you know, put your hands up on the screen while I pray for you. And you know, do you have a ring on? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I do have a ring on. Send that to me. And she sent him the ring, you know, and. It's this kind of behavior, and that's what these Pharisees were doing back then. They had this, you know, outward show of religion. Oh, we're so, you know, look what it says there. It says you, and for a pretense, you make long prayers. So they had this show of being super religious with their really long prayers, and they had this practice of stealing from the vulnerable. Now, there's something interesting in there where it says at the end of verse 14, therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Notice the word greater. What this gets at, and it also is alluded to in Luke chapter 12 and uh, Luke chapter 10, is there are different degrees of punishment in hell, right? Just as we know there are greater degrees of blessing in heaven, okay? Now, don't get me wrong. All heaven's good and all hell is bad. But what Jesus is getting at here is the sin of hypocrisy, pretending to be right with God, but yet leading people astray, while you're pretending to be religious, that gets a whole other degree of punishment. 
in hell. Third woe, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So a proselyte is a Gentile that fully converts to Judaism. They're not to be confused with God-fearers. You'll run into God-fearers in the Gospels. They were people that just sympathized with Judaism. They were people that said, you know, I like Judaism. They're like about one God. They believe in sanctity of marriage. I like that. They're a God-fearer. A proselyte is the one that goes and gets circumcised, goes through all the rituals, starts observing Sabbath, all those things. And it says here that they travel land and sea to make one proselyte. Now, that means that they were zealous for evangelism. Now, that's commendable. But the problem is, is they made their converts more Pharisee-y than the Pharisees, <laughs> you know? They made them worse, you know, essentially. Like, it's kind of known that, like, you know, converts of a certain teacher tend to take it further than what they did. And that's what he's saying is, you know, great job going out in evangelism, you know, evangelizing, but the problem is, is you're converting them to a path to hell, and that's a big deal. Now, I want to point something out here. Um, that I started thinking about this week um, while I was looking at this. He's, he's calling them sons of hell. Now, so Jesus is saying, you were not going to heaven, right? You're sons of hell. These Jews believed in Yahweh, the true and living God. But wait a minute, I thought if I believe in God how could I go to hell? I believe in the true and living God. Jesus is denouncing them, calling them sons of hell, not because they don't believe in the right God, but they do not approach the right God the right way. You see what I mean? You could believe in the right God, but not be approaching him the right way. And that's a condemned uh, status in Jesus' mind. You could be thinking, I worship Jesus Christ, and the way that I'm getting to heaven is by keeping sacraments. You're approaching the right God in the wrong way. And there's a problem with that. You see it here. I love how Jesus has no problem calling this stuff what it is. You know? I do. I'm a man pleaser. I don't want to hurt people's feelings. Jesus just says, look, you're on your way to hell. You're approaching the right God, but you're trying to approach the right God the wrong way. And that's a problem. You know, or any of the other cults, you know, Mormonism, any of these other things. They've got rules set up in man-made traditions, Jehovah's Witness, all these things were, and I mean, they're not approaching the right God. They've created a whole different Jesus, a whole different God, but they're adding systems and works, you know. Approaching the right God the right way is what we must do. You can't approach the right God the wrong way, right? Now, woe for, here we go. This one has to do with swearing oaths. You ever been around a person that goes, I swear to God, man. I swear to God. I swear to God. Oh, I swear to God. You know, swear to God, hope to die. Put a needle in my eye. You know, they're always like going around swearing. Well, this one has to do with swearing. Woe to you, blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gift 
or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Okay, bunch of churchy words. I get it. What he is essentially denouncing them for here is for, you ever had somebody that, uh, you know, told you they were going to do something and they had their fingers crossed behind their back? You know, remember how you do that when you're a kid? You're like, oh, I have my fingers crossed behind my back, you know, so it doesn't count. Well, that's what he's condemning them for. They had this really religious sounding way of doing just something that stupid, right? They said, oh, I swore by the temple, but I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. And then Jesus is like, are you kidding me? You think that there's a difference in these sort of oaths, right? You know, it's like a person, this is, this is another one that happens more when you're adult, is you'll, you'll tell your spouse or somebody that you're going to do something, and then you won't do it, and then when they confront you on it, you'll say, well, I didn't promise, <laughs> you know, like, I didn't promise I was going to do it, but you said you were going to do it, you know, like, what's the difference, you know, oh, I got to qualify that, oh, you, you tell me positively you're going to do something, but then now I got to just put this qualification, do, do you promise? You know, some of you know how that is, because when every time you say that you're going to do something, the person's always asking you, do you promise you're going to do it? <laughs> you know, oh, yes, I've earned that reputation. <laughs> That's what Jesus is getting at. They had these creative ways of, of just making oaths that essentially had loopholes. They weren't binding. So what Jesus does, verse 20, he goes, therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all the things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So what he's saying is all these oaths that you make, he traces them all back to God anyway. And the application is this. When you make an oath, keep that oath because God hears your oaths. Now, you're better off to do what Jesus said in chapter 5, verse 34. You guys remember you don't even need to make oaths. Yeah. As God's people, praise the Lord, we don't even need to get into that because your word is so good that people just, all you have to do is just say the thing once. You don't have to manipulate and try to convince people that you're telling the truth because you are known as a person of truth. And that's a good thing. Don't even take oaths. Don't need to. Next one, Woe 5, verse 22. Sorry, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay tithe, pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Okay, so the Jews, according to the book of Leviticus, were to pay a 10% tithe of their crops. Now these guys take it to the extreme. They're going even into the, just their herb garden that's in their window, you know, like you got a chia pet in your herb garden and your nice windowsill and all that stuff. And they're going in there. They probably not. So, and then they're trimming off, you know, <laughs> 10 leaves off of the cumin, you know, and like one for God, you know, one for God. And they're just meticulously tithing the tiniest little stuff in their income. And, and they're boastful about it. And they, you know, they think, well, we're really righteous about this. But Jesus says, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, right? You might be very meticulous about tithing, but you're not paying attention to the things that are actually more important. Now, is tithing important? Yes, exactly. That's why it says, these you ought to have done but don't leave the others undone, right? <clears throat> he said the weightier matters of the law. Now, all of God's word is important, 
but there are some things that are more important than others. It's all important, it's all breathed out by God, and it all has a purpose. But Jesus is saying, you're meticulously taking a tenth of your herb garden and giving it to God, and that's good. Your reverence and your tithing, you're, you're doing a nice job with that. But you're focused so much on inconsequential, small little things of religion, not even paying attention to the fact that you're not executing justice for the fatherless, the widow, the orphan. Um, you're not distributors of God's mercy, and you're not a people of faith. You know, those are the weightier matters of the law. Like you go to the bathroom in the men's bathroom, man, right? And above the toilet, it says that verse from, uh, was it uh, Micah or Malachi? What does God expect of you to walk humbly, do justly? There are weightier matters of the law. Now, <clears throat> this is what you call majoring on the minors. And there are some Christians today that are interested in this too. There's a lot of people who do the same thing. They'll get hung up on the tiny little details of scripture, but not be so, you know, giving the same amount of attention to love your God, the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, right? You can tell me the tiniest little details of this thing in the scripture, and you can argue over these little inconsequential things, but where's the love, man? Where's the service? Where's the sacrifice? Where's, where's the things that are the weightier matters of the law? Now, next one, woe six, verses 25 through 26, they are concerned with external cleanliness more than internal. Now, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Now, I was thinking about this farm I used to live on. My mom, my, I grew up on a farm with my grandparents and then my mom lived there, then my mom moved away. My grandparents moved away, and then my mom moved back there with my stepdad later on in life. And we had this barn that um, was kind of used as a storage unit by the time my mom lived there. And it still had the smell of hay and pig manure and everything from when I was a kid. And I would go out there um, and just rummage around looking for treasure, you know, because there's all kinds of stuff in there from like years and years of people just piling stuff in there. And I always used to get, uh, you know, I had old remote control cars and train set, and all kinds of stuff, you know. And uh, China, there was this China in there one day, and I thought, that looks great, man. I'm going to, this is like right when eBay came out, you know. I thought, man, I'm going to eBay that, you know, it looks awesome. And you get up close to it, and then there's like dead mice in it and like mouse turds all over and everything. And like, it was terrible, you know? And like, but it looked great on the outside. It was all nice and white and gold foil, and you know? And then, so we just threw it away. But I mean, that's exactly what Jesus is saying about these Pharisees. He's like, you're like a cup that looks all nice on the outside, but then you go to drink out of it, and you're like, oh man, there's like, you know, mouse turds in there. Even worse, he says extortion and self-indulgence. You know what extortion is? It's like brutally like forcing people to do things and manipulating them and blackmailing them. Like that's a terrible thing, you know, trying to get money out of people. You know, like I'll ruin your reputation if you don't give me money. That's extortion, you know. And then uh, self-indulgence. You know what self-indulgence is, right? It's like I'm going to go to the buffet and I'm going to put on my football helmet and I'm going to just... Oh, get out of my way, my buffet, you know, self-indulgence, right? 
It's all about them. Blind Pharisees. Look at verse 26. Very helpful. First cleanse the inside of the dish, cup and dish, that the outside may be clean also. This is a beautiful thing that Jesus Christ offers us. Christ offers us a way to get our inside right, to get the inner man, the inner woman right. We don't have to fake it till we make it as Christians. Praise the, praise the Lord. I don't have to put on a face and pretend like I'm something I'm not. All I have to do is just open myself up to Christ and let him work on me from the inside out. And that's what he says is just, just get this straight. God wants a relationship with you, with the real you. And he'll transform you and he'll shape you. And he'll, he'll make you into that which he wants you to be. And, and you don't have to even live in this pressure of having a different person outside than you do inside. It's beautiful. It's how you truly change. God is first interested in our inner life. And I just want you to hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to that. Same issue in the next woe, woe number seven. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I remember when I was young, we had a dog that we buried. And, um, you know, could, could you imagine digging up a tomb and then opening it and just the dead men's bones, the dog, you know what I mean? But that's what Jesus is saying they're like. They're like whitewashed tombs. Now, this term whitewashed tombs, these guys would know exactly what he was talking about. See, when you were going into Jerusalem, the Jews went to Jerusalem for feasts. They were commanded by law. If you lived within a certain radius, you had to go to Jerusalem a number of times a year. Passover was one of them. This is Passover time. And so part of the Jewish law, Leviticus, Exodus, is a Jew could not come into contact with death, right? A dead body, blood, a tomb, especially. These things would make a person unclean. So I'm on my way to Jerusalem to the Passover, and I'm walking down the road, and the way that they buried people were they had tombs above ground, even alongside the road. Now, if I was going and unsuspected a tomb and I bumped one, ceremonially, I'm unclean. I can't go to the Passover. So what they would do is they would go out and start whitewashing tombs, bleach them to where everybody saw them and make no mistake, here's this tomb. Uh, you don't want to disqualify yourself legally, you know, ceremonially, so you can't go to Passover. And so you'd be walking down the street and you'd see all these whitewashed tombs. And that's what Jesus is calling them. He's saying, you whitewashed tombs, they polish you up. You polish yourself up all nicely on the outside, but inside, dead men's bones, right? I can't help but think about like social media, like how many people polish themselves up to get the right shot, you know? Like I have literally seen people almost walk off the seawall in Clear Lake, like trying to, oh, oh, you know, like, dude, you just fell 30 feet <laughs> because you're trying to get the right angle. Like, oh, is this one? I got, let me get more fish lips. And you're trying to get like this picture of you, you know, you're trying to whitewash the outside. And it's like, man, if you have real friends, all they care about is what's going on in the inside of you. Anyway, God sees the inside. That's all he cares about. But that's what I think of them is they're, they're whitewashing themselves on the outside. They're trying to put an image out there into this world of who they are. And that's not who they are, right? There's a big problem with doing that. You do that long enough, eventually you start to believe your own crap, you know? If you try to live two lives, eventually you start believing 
And then you forget who you are. And here's another bad problem with that. If you always put an image out to the world that's not really you, eventually you start to feel more and more disconnected and lonely because you know that nobody knows you. Serious thing to think about. Woe number eight. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, verse 29, because you build the temp- I'm sorry, you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Okay. When he says your fathers, he's talking to these, the Jewish leadership and he's saying your ancestors murdered all these prophets, right? Now, you Jews that are alive right now here in Jesus' time, he's saying to them, he's saying, you guys essentially, you know, go to the cemetery and put the wreaths on it and you, you build and adorn, you know, all these grave sites of your ancestors, you know, or of the prophets. And, and what you're doing in doing that is you're saying, yeah, we are the ancestors of those who killed the prophets, but they're saying, oh, we would have never done something if that was us back then, right? But here's the thing. Jesus knows that they are planning to kill him. <laughs> so he's saying, it's funny, you guys adorn these monuments of the prophets that your, that your you know, ancestors killed, and you say, I would have never done something like that, but you're actually planning to kill the Messiah. And that's what he says right there, verse 32. Then fill up the measure of your father's guild, right? Essentially, you're filling up the cup. It's about to overflow with guilt because you're about to, your generation is about to commit the worst thing and you're just like all of your ancestors. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 33, hardcore. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of you, some of them you will kill and crucify and some of them you will scourge in the synagogues and persecute from city to city. You may come all the righteous shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This brood of vipers, these serpents, how can they escape the condemnation of hell? Jesus says then, I'll send you prophets, wise men, scribes, some of them you'll kill and crucify. This generation that Jesus is talking to is not guilty of killing the prophets, but this generation here um, will kill Jesus and will kill all the you know, leaders of the early church. That's what he's getting at there. Then verse 35, the result of this killing that they will do, that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. Now, what he's saying is this whole martyrdom that you guys are involved in, this persecuting, this killing of God's prophets, righteous people, you're just completing the whole thing. And it started all the way back with righteous Abel. Now, you know who he was. He's the first person that was murdered in the Bible, right? His brother killed him. You guys know his brother? 
Yeah, Cain killed Abel, right? Because, you know, his offering was righteous. His brother didn't like it. And, and so then he says, and then that may come, uh, that on you may come the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Birkiah. Now, Zechariah, this is likely referring to the guy referred to in Second Chronicles. So what Jesus is saying here, the Jewish Bible, the end of it, is Second Chronicles. So when Jesus says the bloodshed, you know, from righteous Abel to Zechariah, it's just like it looks there. It's A to Z. Every prophet from start to beginning, you're guilty of all of it, right? That's what he's saying. Um, by say, if you know, today it would be like us saying all the bloodshed from Genesis to Revelation. Well, he's saying all the way from Abel to Zechariah. No. All this terrible martyrdom throughout history will culminate in the deaths of Jesus and the early fathers of his generation, and the guilt will fall on that generation. Isn't that a kind of a trip that, like, these people that pretend to be so religious outwardly are responsible for murder? So much murder? Now, here's our last section. Those were the eight woes. That was terrible, right? Um, scathing words. I want to point out for a second that Jesus Christ does not have this kind of, these kind of words, these harsh words for sinners, like uh, you know, adulterers, fornicators, um, drunk people, you know, people involved in you know, addictions. People. You never see Jesus really take it to anybody except for religious hypocrites, people that should have known better, but rather they're using their power and their position to manipulate people. So find comfort in that because there's some people that's what they think of church. They think that, you know, God has all these terrible words for them and that he hates them and that he's so mad at them because they sin and it's like God loves you. And he wants to save you and he wants to fill you with his power and his love and break the chains of sin and addiction in your life. And he wants to help you and he wants to help you find true life. But if you're a religious hypocrite, uh, then this, you know, this is how Jesus feels about that. Now, this gives us some balance here. I, man, oh man, I just love this. Verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, those are emotional words. The one who kills the prophets stones those who are sent to her. Look what he says there. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. What a place of safety. What a place of comfort and love. Here is the picture of God as a mother hen. Right? There's a lot of pictures in the Bible that try to help us to understand who God is. And Here's one of God as a mother hen with her protective wings. And Jesus is heartbroken because these people did not 
respond to his love. Look at what it says there. How I wanted to often gather you. And he says, it, but you were not willing. He loves them and he is heartbroken. You have to understand that. Jesus just said these hardcore things, pronouncing the judgment of God that's upon them, not because he's mad at them. He loves them. His heart is broken. He says, but you are not willing. Now, this is a really interesting statement here. This helps us bring some balance to the doctrine of like predestination and election. And Jesus clearly said here that he wanted, how often I wanted to gather you together, how often I wanted to give you salvation, but you were not willing. That could be God's story to somebody that you know. How often? The Bible says that God desires that no one should perish, but that all should come to salvation. Okay? You might know somebody today that this is the exact story and take out Jerusalem and put their name in there, you know, and it's like, oh, oh, you know, friend or cousin or, or whatever. How often Jesus has been trying to gather you to him to care for you, but you're not willing. Now, if anybody misses the love and the care and the protection and the escape from condemnation, if anybody misses that, it's because they're not willing. You see that? Everybody must receive Jesus. The Jews, the Gentiles, everybody must come to him his way, right? The Catholics, the Mormons, everybody needs to turn from all this other stuff and come to Jesus, the one way that God has provided. Praise God that he's provided one way to come to him. And he wants you to see him today as like a hen trying to gather you under the wings to protect you from the judgment that's to come and to care for you and to love you. But you got to be willing you can sit here today and you can say, I'm not willing, and that's okay. I mean, that's, it's tragic. But God will not override your free will. Verse 39 says, For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's talking about the second coming. By and large, the Jews that are alive at the second coming, there will be a, a national like expectancy of the Messiah to come. They will be like reeling from being duped, <laughs> you know, and uh, they will be like welcoming Christ at that time. That's what he's getting at. He's talking about the second coming, which we're going to get into more next week. Listen, I want to conclude with a few thoughts here. We're done after that. This is the end of Jesus' rebuke of the religious leadership. I want to focus on what you see in verse 37 here. We're just going to backtrack a little bit. Verse 37, where I got stuck on this. Okay, Jesus loves them. Here you have a people that are so concerned with holding up this external religious image. The inside of them is untouched by God. They're filled with all this sinful stuff. They're filled with corruption, all this. They're murderers. <laughs> They're extortioners. They steal property from widows. They're false. They're fake. They heap heavy burdens on people. They're all about money. But Jesus loves them. And it's still his heart. I bet you if they would have turned right then, you know, oh, Jerusalem, how I long to go. Okay, okay, we'll come. Right there, the offer's open. 
even though he knows what's going on in them, he loves them. And they missed the blessing of a real relationship with God. Their religion was one of externals. And there are people today that are missing a blessing of having a real relationship with a real God based on the, the real them because they're involved in like this external fake image that they're trying to put out on the whole world here. They're missing out on this blessing. They defined themselves by their outward appearance. They were hypocrites. They were actors. They missed the fact that God was concerned with their inner life. We must be careful not to do the same thing today. God is concerned with your inner life. Okay? Now, as a Christian, it gets easy to do. Maybe, maybe not for you, for me. There's this danger of drifting into just outward Christian life. You know, at least with me, when I'm made aware by the Holy Spirit that that's kind of how things have started to go, it's generally like a real gradual thing for me, right? And there becomes this disconnect between who I am on the outside and who I am on the inside. You know, <coughs> come to church, somebody asks me how I'm doing, and you get the outward display how I think that I should answer this on the outside, right? If you're a believer here today, that means that God put his life inside of you. He's concerned about what's going on in your inner life. And he's more concerned about that than, than the image that you're giving off. He's more concerned about what's going on inside of you, you know? Maybe that's a good reminder for you today. This has been a good reminder for me. Is like, how is your inner life? Are you angry and frustrated? Are you impatient? You're beating yourself up. You're telling yourself that you're not, uh, you know, it, it's, it's how you talk to yourself inside in line with how God feels about you and talks about you in his word. How is that inner life? Critical of other people? I'm frustrated all the time? So you don't fake it till you make it as a Christian. You don't do that. Here's how it works. You get saved, God puts his life inside of you, and he starts to work on you on the inside out. And like it says in Philippians, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you. So here's the process. You say yes to Jesus, his life comes inside of you, and he starts transforming you from the inside out. And as that happens, you're aware of it. You're aware of what's going on because you're reading the word, you're in fellowship with other Christians, people are talking to you, you're, getting, you're in prayer. You're aware with what's going on, and so you just cooperate with it right? You just cooperate. You know, it makes me think about, we went to Zion National Park, and he keeps using these words, blind guides. And I try to think about, man, can you imagine, Aaron, if we would have got there and somebody would have been like, let's take you up on Angel's Landing. Here's a guide for you. He's blind. <laughs> I'm like, well, what? How much worse spiritually? Here's the good thing is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, a perfect, perfect vision. This guide has perfect vision, and he'll lead you. So I want to encourage you today, you know, God knows everything about you. He knows what your inner life is all about. He knows the bad, the good, and he loves you anyway. And he wants to work on you from the inside out. So what you do is maybe this week you say, Lord, this, I need to get right in my inner person. The inner man, inner woman is kind of off here. Spend time with him in prayer. Spend time with him in his word. Spend time just being quiet. Take a break out of your busy schedule some way or another. Listen, don't convince yourself that busyness is righteousness, right? It's a good thing to be busy. 
But once you're so busy that your inner life is not really what it should be with Christ, your busyness has become idolatry. You would hear Jesus say to you, Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen the good thing, right? You need some of that good thing. You need some of that one thing. That one thing is Jesus, an inner relationship with him. And I'll leave you with this thought. I met with a friend of mine last week that's not a Christian, and he's having such a hard time because he feels lonely, and he feels disconnected, and he feels like nobody knows who he is. But he's not a Christian, so he doesn't understand the blessing of being able to become one of these people that live from the inside out. And he's lived with an image for so long that he feels like nobody knows him. So I want you to leave here today appreciating God, that God gives you this ability to have a healthy inner life, right? Heavenly Father, thank you for that truth today. And we pray that you would work these truths deep into our heart. We ask, Lord, that this would be a week of just focusing on the inner man, the inner woman with you, Lord. And I pray, Father, God, I pray for those that are just not willing. I respect you, Lord, and I understand that you respect their free will. It hurts to watch people reject you. Lord, I pray that you would just, that they would respond, Lord, to your love. They would see you as this mother hen that wants to care for them and protect them. Maybe even today. Jesus' name, amen.